Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 21st of October 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Um, where's the power, Mike? City mayors, perhaps? Well, perhaps, but uh, Andy Burnham has uh, caved in to uh, the demands from central government uh, to implement level three or tier three. And uh, of course, the rules, no households mixing indoors or outdoors anywhere, including private gardens. Rule of six applies everywhere. Par bars and pubs uh, that don't serve food have to be closed. Uh, and uh, there's restrictions on travel and so on. So he gave in, although it was pretty clear as the as the fake rebellion was continuing that actually what he was wanting was more money so he was only ever going to do that uh, but his colleague over in Sheffield Dan Jarvis uh, saying this following extensive discussion South Yorkshire will move to tier three from Saturday well that's one minute one minute past midnight uh, on Saturday morning so uh, uh, tier three for the South Yorkshire as well uh, inaction was not an option he said hospital emissions have doubled in 10 days well have they and what does that mean anyway um we're gonna have a we're gonna have a quick look at that so uh, let's start off with the latest uh, office for national statistics numbers uh for mortality and uh well this is the old excess mortality graph which has now been brought back uh, the red line we've just put on screen is uh, the total deaths in england and wales uh for 2020 and we can see the peak in April. And we can also see a few troughs. There's that trough there uh, and that trough there and that one there. And those, of course, are because those were bank holidays uh, and there, was, uh, there wasn't reporting on those days. So those are sort of uh, not real. Uh, but nonetheless, if we put the five-year average on, uh, it's a pretty clear picture. Um, first of all, let's remind ourselves uh, of the lockdown deaths, which happened as a result of lockdown. The week 13 was when we had lockdown. Uh, and so everything in there pretty much is a lockdown death. Uh, but uh, when we head over to the right-hand side of this, uh, what we see is normal mortality. Brian, no pandemic, no sign of a pandemic whatsoever. Uh, and yet we are playing with localized lockdowns everywhere uh, because of this. Well, of course, I'm going to correct you there. We're not playing. This is deathly serious. People are dying as a result of these policies by the government. So the British government lying to the population over the statistics because the Office for National Statistics has consistently put out real data. So this is the interpretation which is being used to deceive the population. And of course, people are dying as a result of the policy in the lockdowns. Well, this is the question. What will happen this winter? Will we start seeing similar lockdown deaths that we saw in April? But let's uh, put the word no on this uh, on this graphic because there is no excess mortality at this particular point in time. What will happen over the winter as a result of these lockdowns? This is what we will want to have a look at. So let's have a look at uh, this the daily deaths statistics for England. Uh, daily for cancer at the moment, it's around 450 people every day dying from cancer. Uh, daily from dementia, uh, 192. Uh, daily from heart disease, uh, 174. Daily from stroke, 99. And daily from COVID-19, even if we accept uh, the COVID-19 statistics, which we don't, as we'll show you in a second. Daily from COVID-19, 21. So what we had at the start of the year was the complete reorientation of the NHS away from cancer, dementia, heart disease and stroke and towards COVID-19. Uh, and of course, what we saw was the mortality that resulted from that. Uh, and we're seeing that again now in the sense that people aren't getting uh, treated for cancer at the moment. There's a massive backlog. Uh, and well, here's the proof of that statement. Uh, because here's the latest uh, Office for National Statistics uh, numbers for the place of death. And we've got four categories here in hospital, where people died in hospital, where people died in care homes, where people died at, in their own homes uh, and other locations. And what we can see, first of all, with the hospital statistics is that the number of people dying uh, at the moment is less than the, uh, the five-year average. Fewer people dying than the five-year average. The same for care homes fewer people dying than the five-year average. But in their own homes, there's massive excess mortality relative to the five-year uh, five uh, average. Uh, and others, well, it's more or less the same as the five-year average. 
So this is saying quite a lot, Brian, because this is absolutely showing that people are choosing to die in their own homes. They're not getting the medical help that they need. And the NHS is not providing the service that they need. It's simply providing the so-called COVID um, thing. The key point about that data, Mike, you've taken the trouble to search through the ONS data and to put it up on screen. You, you're not changing that data in any way. You're just presenting it in a clear form for the, for the viewers and listeners to appreciate. So if UK Column can do it, why is it that the British government can't do it? There can only be one answer since they hold all of the teams and the 7,000 people in the cabinet office, if, if you are seeing what is crass inaccuracies and, and change and spin in the statistics, it's being done deliberately. Um, so if it's not deaths that's driving this clear, these claims of pandemic and claims uh, of requirement of lockdown, then what is it? Well, of course, it's testing. So I want to just uh, highlight this document from the Health and Safety uh, uh, sorry, the, the Irish uh, uh, Health Service. Um, and this document is called Proposal for the Management of Weak Positive High CT Value PCR Results in the Setting of Mass Testing of Asymptomatic Individuals for SARS-CoV-2. Now, I'm not really uh, going to comment on the, the, the main purpose of this document. I just want to highlight some of the facts that they mention in the document. Uh, so this is talking about a particular testing scenario, and uh, that's not of so much interest to me. It's the facts that they, that they mention in the document that are important. Uh, so let's look at the first one. It is increasingly apparent that SARS-CoV-2 RNA remains detectable in upper respiratory tract samples for some patients for many weeks. Now, the definition of death from COVID-19 in the UK at the moment is if you have tested for COVID-19 within the previous 28 days. Uh, up until the point of death. Uh, but what this uh, is quite clearly saying is that, that you could have uh, signs of COVID-19 in your system for many weeks, not just 28 days. Uh, and uh, so is that valid detection uh, or is that a valid claim of that somebody has died of COVID? Well, I don't think it is. So let's look at this section. This is called uh, detection of SARS-CoV-2 RNA in person who has no prior report of symptoms or other clinical features. And they're saying that they may represent either pre-symptomatic infection in a person who subsequently will develop symptoms or other clinical features, uh, that they could be symptomatic infection in a person who has symptoms or other clinical features not noted prior to or at the time of testing, fair enough, so it could be genuine. Uh, there could be a true asymptomatic infection or, and most importantly, it could be a person who's recovered from infection and has residual RNA detectable. This is a point we've been making. Patrick has, Penningson has been particularly making this point over a number of weeks. Uh, this is an official Irish government document. Uh, and it goes on to say this, PCR does not distinguish between viable virus and non-infectious RNA. And this is absolutely key. So when a death is registered as being COVID-19, uh, was it viable virus in that person that killed them? Or did the test simply uh, show non-infectious non RNA from a previous infection that could have gone back three months. Um, it says uh, individuals in individuals infected with SARS-CoV-2, PCR can often detect viral RNA for many days and weeks after the resolution of the clinical syndrome. Uh, there are very few reports of viable SARS-CoV-2 virus being retrieved in a culture from clinical specimens. Uh, with a CT value of greater than 34. Now, this is very important as well, because this, of course, the way that PCR uh, works is it attempts to amplify the, uh, the RNA that's in the sample, and it does that by running the RNA through various cycles. Um, and if uh, you get, you know, if you, you get a, a good sample in up to 30 cycles, that's considered a positive test. Anything more than 30 cycles, you're starting to see, well, perhaps false positives begin to to uh, creep in, but look, here's the, here's the World Health Organization, and they're talking about the protocol for real-time PCR tests for SARS-CoV-2, and they're talking about 50 cycles of amplification, and we've uh, highlighted on this program over the last number of weeks that in the UK, uh, the testing, PCR testing is being run through 45 cycles. Yeah. It, it, you're amplifying nothing, it's, it is ridiculous. Um, so the claims that, that uh, the deaths are the or that hospitalizations or positive tests are the reason for the lockdowns don't stack up. We've been saying it for months uh, and it's time for people to start holding government to account on this. 
uh, because the, the, <laughs> the facts are clear. Yeah, I'll just add to this, Mike, that um, somebody sent me a very interesting document last night. I'm getting into it, but it's a UN document and it's talking about training for police forces, UN police, but also police forces across the world as a result of the pandemic and in inverted commas. And uh, so we've got the two things going together. We've got the falsification of the data, but we've also got the training and the escalation of powers for the police. We're going to be coming on to some of that a bit later. Um, Alex, just before I move on with testing, uh, what are your thoughts on that so far? I think, Mike, that the continental press is a little in the lead <clears throat> in reporting the fallibility of PCR and the unsuitability of it. In fact, Dr. Elke de Klerk, speaking in Berlin last weekend for the World Doctors Alliance, made that very point. She's bringing um, a, an emergency proceedings, a summary proceeding um, against the Dutch state to remove COVID-19 from the what the Dutch call the A-list. That's the list of notifiable diseases, diseases that have to be tipped off as highly infectious. Uh, she says there is no valid case for that. And she points to the fact that the PCR test is now openly being questioned by uh, a wide range of mainstream medics. In fact, that case that uh, Elke de Klerk and others, uh, including uh, a couple of well-known Irish doctors are bringing, is an offshoot of the case that I covered, I think it was last time I was on, by Dr. Rainer Fulmich. It's all under the umbrella of the German extra-parliamentary inquiry into coronavirus. Meanwhile, there are quite significant developments, not so much PCR related, uh, in the two leading common law challenges uh, in the English High Court uh, to uh, COVID-19 measures. Perhaps we'll be discussing that a bit later or uh, perhaps now is the time to go into that. But uh, it's interesting that on the continent, the focus seems to be in the best legal challenges more on the faulty data and methodology. Uh, in uh, Britain and other common law jurisdictions, the focus is more on, uh, should we say, disproportionate loss of liberty. It's kind of human rights language, but that's the best you've got in the current court system. Uh, but these two approaches are complementary and can uh, reinforce each other as a stereo effect. Mm. Yeah, OK, well, look, uh, let's let's move on because, uh, well, roll up, roll up. Uh, get your COVID-19 test here. Uh, and uh, of course, if you're going traveling through Heathrow Airport, you can now spend 80 quid uh, to get yourself a COVID-19 test before you fly off to Italy or to Hong Kong, uh, because, uh, well, Hong Kong in particular is requiring it now. Um, and you're going to get a result within an hour. Uh, the tests are being provided by uh, this organization, Collinson, uh, which is all about taking a different approach to your customers with them. Uh, and uh, it's a rapid saliva swab. It's uh, known as a lamp test, uh, which is loop-mediated isothermal amplification. It's uh, quicker than PCR. It's, well, is it as reliable as PCR? I think not. Um, so, it, you know, this, this move towards rapid testing is potentially even worse uh, than PCR is. Um, so, uh, the point that, that is being made here in their press release is that a growing number of countries have uh, classified the UK as being at risk, as the UK has also uh, named other countries as being at risk, and that so, so uh, other countries are requiring UK or travellers from the UK uh, to face restrictions, including, including quarantine when they arrive uh, in those countries. And so Hong Kong is now requiring people to show that they have a negative test result, which was taken within 72 hours. Uh, of their flight from Heathrow. Um, yeah. And of course, this comes back to this whole point that we've been making over the last couple of weeks about the definition of mandatory, uh, because you know it doesn't require mandate, a mandate for a mandatory requirement from government in order to make this thing, this stuff effectively no, mandatory. You could be pressurized very easily, blackmailed. Yes. You could use another term for it. Into trying to blackmail people into complying. Yes, so sticking with the uh, airline industry then, uh, here's Grant Shapps. Uh, he was giving a talk. Uh, he was giving a talk called "Beyond the Crisis" to the aviation industry, uh, and this is what he had to say. Uh, basically, the UK is not going to accept a, a day zero test on arrival. Um, so Hong Kong not accepting a day zero test on arrival. You've got to have had the test within 72 hours, but it's a, effectively a day zero test on arrival. But the UK isn't going to do that. He says that that could allow a very significant number of people to wrongly believe. Uh, they were not bringing COVID-19 back with them. Uh, and he went on to say that uh, this will mean a single test for international arrivals 
uh, a week after arrival is the regime that the British government wants. So in other words, you come into the country, you're required to self-isolate for at least a week, but you're entitled to take a test after a week and then based on the result of that test that you may be released. So they're calling it test and release model. Uh, so you're effectively imprisoned uh, until, you're, until you're released. Uh, that's good. Uh, and he went on to say, uh, I know it's confusing for passengers when every nation has a different system. Therefore, we need a global system. Yeah, uh, we start key... to see this is the key point, isn't it? Yeah, that's the key statement. Why everything we, we see as we track through, where does the policy come from? We're, we're increasingly going to that it's a global system. We're going to be talking policing in a minute. And where does it come back to that the police are speaking to each other worldwide? Um, Alex, it's pretty obvious that we've got a world government system in the wings trying to get itself fully established. And of course, control of every individual on the planet has got to be a key objective to keep control of the planet. Yes, Brian, but cracks are starting to appear in the globalist ranks. And Martin Edwards, who writes regularly for us in the One World Government series, uh, has often pointed to Andy Burnham, uh, this newfangled category of metropolitan mayor, in his case for Greater Manchester, his own stomping grounds, Mr. Burnham's stomping grounds. But Mr. Burnham, uh, although he struts his globalist stuff like nobody's business, has come out swinging in a uh, press conference yesterday at tea time against the government because he's in that M62 corridor, the densely populated heart of the north of England, stretching really from coast to coast, that is, as you reported at the top of the hour, uh, increasingly being bullied, and several councillors and mayors are talking about this, uh, using this language, bullied into accepting uh, a wad of cash, usually just uh, not quite sufficient to compensate people for lost earnings, in exchange for level three lockdown. Uh, Mr. Burnham seemed to have a degree of sincerity that I uh, wouldn't have expected here. Uh, I'm talking about this with some friends in the uh, north of England, and a couple of them have come independently to the conclusion, and I think this marries very well with Ian Crane's analysis, which, which has been very north of England focused over the years, that, um, you know, should we say uh, policies that in the past would have been done to natives overseas are being repatriated, domesticated. And the north of England, the long and the short of it is, the north of England, first of all, is being turned into a for-profit prison council area by council area. You will take this cash. There is not a penny more. Take it or leave it. Uh, it's not sufficient to prevent despair and suicides and death, but it makes the figures look nice and it keeps people locked down. It's that or the government will blame the local councils with whom they usually have a party political distinction as well uh, for having uh, not done the best by its people or worse. So there is definitely a split among the tyrannous ranks that we're uh, discerning at the moment. Uh, do, you, do you think it is a split, Alex, or was it just as a, you know, was it just he was angling for more cash? It was very much give me the money. It was a Bob Geldof act, absolutely. But I know people will criticise me in some ways for taking him a bit too much at his word, but the body language and the tone of voice did seem to me in that press conference and also the repeated hammering on this is not fair on the lowest earners. Of course, he's a Labour man, that's his focus. Um, did seem to me to be not entirely insincere. It's possible that it may have been a bit of a strategy, but some fear, some uncertainty is showing through that, as we've been discussing in recent episodes, um, even the best run or the most globalist run of these new region and city fiefdoms, the bosses of them are starting to realise that they are but replaceable pawns, fungible assets to the international level. And if they don't turn a profit on their patch with the, uh, you know, the, the, the pittance that they're given to do so of our money, I may add, uh, then they'll be out on their ear and someone else can take it over and, and turn a profit. This is the model applied to our emergency services now as well, with disastrous, uh, response, disastrous results of deaths and, and lives ruined and depression. So I think Mr. Burnham is possibly getting wise to that if we give him a bit of the benefit of the doubt. Yep. Perhaps there's something else we should add to that, uh, Alex, which is, of course, uh, many people sitting saying, why doesn't somebody do something uh, when somebody starts to show that they're moving at least in the right direction, as well as the stick, they need the carrot. And I think it's very important for UK column viewers and listeners to be discerning when somebody starts to move or maybe they're even hesitating about following the line. 
then they need support as well as uh, as emails holding their feet to the fire. I'll just throw that into the mix. But uh, my phone rang very early this morning and somebody said, have you seen this article in the Daily Mail? Well, what was the headline? Now show us your papers. Scotland Yard urges pubs and restaurants to snoop on customers by asking for photo IDs and addresses to stop customers breaking lockdown rules. Um, now, what this means is that you're just sitting uh, quietly having a meal, but in the background, what we've got is the full power of the Met Police and uh, Cressida Dick, the boss, spying on people. So I went through the article. Um, it is extremely interesting because you could say on one hand that this is a spun article. It was designed to instill fear in people. It was designed to train them into the idea of what's coming more than it was a Daily Mail article warning about something sinister. Why do I think that? Well, let's have a look at some of the things that were said. So basically, um, the paper quoted, um, Cressida, uh, quoted the Met Police, but I'm uh, saying, well, this lady's the boss, so she can take the can. So my Met letter said premises should take steps to satisfy themselves that the group, a maximum of six people, is only from one household or part of a, quote, support bubble. This could include requesting photographic identification with names and addresses. So that's what the uh, Met Police were essentially asking about. Um, Cressida Dick had ordered her police force to ask traders to get the names and photos, uh, names, addresses and photo ID of customers so that I can stop households mixing I don't care if people think police questions are intimidating. The police said, well, we've only asked questions, but of course, if you get the police asking questions, that's intimidating for, for most people. Clearly, Cressida Dick is not bothered if people are intimidated. She'd asked her police force to get the names and addresses. Um, she'd also effectively ordered the police force to check Facebook and other social media sites to see whether landlords are letting customers flout social distancing rules. So now we're into the real spying on the public because you think you're just posting stuff on social media or maybe you're the owner of a bar helping pro to promote your bar or restaurant, but actually the police are now coming in. And what people need to remember about Cressida Dick is that she has been fully trained and reframed. What does that mean? Well, if you're mentally reframed, you're effectively brainwashed. Uh, by the political charity Common Purpose. And uh, the key mantra of Common Purpose was always to get people to act outside of their authority. So we can presume quite accurately, I think, that Cressida Dick simply doesn't care if she's breaking the law because under a Common Purpose training, she's very happy to say she is the law. Um, I'm being very cynical here, Alex, um, but Common Purpose was always an exceptionally dangerous charity because it was reframing people politically and socially. We've now got some of their future leaders controlling the Met Police and they think they can make the law up to spy on us. You're muted, Alex. Muted. Thanks for reminding me, fashionable new microphone with a dangerous fancy mute button on it. Um, in the first generation of common purposeism, their slogan was um, acting beyond authority. In those days, it was just common law, statutory powers, and the rest was made up as policy. But as David Scott has been good at teasing out both north and south of the border, you have uh, basically this, this vector, this, this juggernaut of its policy anyway, even where the law has been overturned. And now we start to see how much common purpose has been the spider's web that has allowed the networking of people who think that way, that only folk like us should run society. And if it gets thrown out by the courts because it's not law, which is the good old English way of doing things, uh, then it will continue as policy nonetheless and failing that guidance. This is something we're going into in the future episodes of uh, the podcast series that the three of us are doing, Mike and David and I, called The Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, uh, which of course is getting some flack, but we're going to persist with it. And it's probably a good moment also to point out the two common law challenges I mentioned because they go into the very area you are talking about. They're complementary again. One is by um, 
Dr. Kevin Corbett, who's been had an excellent interview on David Scott's YouTube channel, Northern Exposure, together with Richard Tilbrook. And this one is found if people search on the crowdjustice.com site for the, corona, the Coronavirus Act 2020 is null and void by the people's Brexit. And if people want to know the latest on that, if they uh, look at the statement of facts, um, what's uh, very important, if they scroll down to the point where they can see the detail, the new detail that's been added just a couple of days ago, Dr. Kevin Corbett, Mr. Stephen Morris, Dr. Neil McRae, they are talking very much about this. Statutory instruments, secondary legislation, call it what you want, rule by decree, cannot undo fundamental law. Even civil law high courts like the Netherlands have found this in cases like fluoride, which I keep mentioning to people. But there are many other examples, examples abound. If you bring it to the attention of a Supreme Court, a Supreme Court, even in a civil law jurisdiction, will say this is too fundamental a right to be taken away by Cressida Dick saying, um, you know, uh, two ministers and their dog met at midnight and decided I have these powers to ask for papers, please. You know, the photo ID demand is just a rehash of the same thing that we had in the mid 2000s. Watch out, there's Muslim terrorists about photo ID for all. You know, and they particularly again tried to force that on Manchester first, I recall. Whether it's a Labour or Tory government, they seem to have it in for Manchester and Liverpool in many ways, and the whole of the M62 corridor. Perhaps there's a particular disdain for what they regard as plebs there. Perhaps they have too much sense of their constitutional identity. Uh, I don't know what it is. But the other challenge in the High Court which complements that is perhaps a little better known to some, that's Simon Dolan. And that again is on crowdjustice.com. We've mentioned it before. This one is entitled, Join the Legal Challenge to the UK Government Lockdown. And the update there is that the Speaker's Council of the House of Commons, so the, the lawyer who advises the Speaker of the House of Commons on uh, not allowing Bill of Rights uh, privileges of Parliament to be infringed, has said, you've got an Article 9 case here because um, courts are going to consider you know, whether Parliament or ministers can, uh, or particularly ministers, can enact things outside Parliament. And Mr Dolan's made this case well enough, as it prepares to go to the High Court, that the Speaker has said that on the 29th of October, if I remember the date right, he will make a statement, Mr Hoyle will make a statement in the House. It will be drafted by lawyers, not by himself, of course, but it will be asserting the inalienable privileges of the people and their elected representatives uh, to deliberate in Parliament on the laws that govern us. That's the heart of the matter. Cressida Dick uh, and many others of her ilk have contempt for Parliament, for the Bill of Rights and for our common law. Yeah, thank you uh, for that, Alex. Well, we'll just uh, move on a little bit with Cressida Dick because I went looking just for some simple information on her. And uh, what popped out was this uh, Jewish news article after receiving Damehood Met Chief Cressida Dick addresses to Jewish groups. Now, this is back in September um, 2019, um, but very interesting, encouraging people to go and have a look at this article um, because it turns out she'd been very busy. It said that on Wednesday, and I'm sh not sure the exact date, this is a Wednesday in September 2019, Cressida returned from Australia where she discussed counter-terrorism with Southern Hemisphere colleagues. That's a little bit of uh, world government speak there. You're not just the police officer for, with the Met, you're working with your hemisphere colleagues. Um, she praised the Met's relationship with the Jewish Community Security Trust, which is effectively a private security force. Those are my words. Dame Cressida said it was exceptional, adding she believed it was very important that CST helps other minority communities. So um, if you're in the right club, it's okay to have your own private um, security force and you'll get the support of Cressida Dick. Uh, but it went on. Um, she said that she could speak warmly of links with Israeli police. The Met Assistant Commissioner Neil Basu is in Israel this week, meeting opposite numbers in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and discussing technology and training in what I call a very important relationship. So this is just fascinating stuff. We're going to suggest that the UK public should be asking for the minutes of those, <coughs> excuse me, meetings between the Met Police and the Israeli Police um, Force. And we would like to know why it's a special relationship. Um, but that should have all been minuted and should be available to the public. And probably the next question should be, was the recent brutal action by the Met Police against protesters in Trafalgar Square the result of Israeli policing advice from Palestine? Um, 
Is that tongue in cheek? Well, no, it's not. I think there's some really serious questions to be asked here because I'm not sure what the Israeli police are going to be teaching the Met police. Um, but I'll just go on here. I've put these uh, words into her mouth. Although I'm making up the law by acting outside my authority, the public can rest assured that and then this is her own words there has been a massive change in the ability of the police to protect the public through technology so alex just very quickly because we're watching the clock um this lady is quite remarkable she can't cope with police in the uh, sorry she can't cope with crime and policing in our capital city but she can jet off to australia to discuss her colleagues and we can team up with the Israelis um, who are apparently teaching us how to police in UK. There's something wrong here. It has deep roots as well, Brian, because on the 7th of July 2005, I remember coming into GCHQ and immediately being put on the response, of course, to the uh, incident that had happened in London that we still don't know very much about really. And I remember uh, I think uh, with hindsight, probably a common purpose or common purpose friendly lady standing up with a clipboard, giving us a briefing and the very uh, signal way in which she uh, intoned Cressida Dick has been made the bronze or was it gold commander uh, for the event. And I, I remember thinking in a kind of inchoate sense at that sense in that stage, you know her in some other capacity, don't you? So this this goes a long way back. And of course, at that stage, as I mentioned before, it was an internal no-no within GCHQ to talk about our relationship with Israel. And all of a sudden, the couple of years after I leave, Francis Maud is trumpeting GCHQ's relationship with Israel as a national asset. You know, just in uh, two years before that, it had been something that was far too sensitive to talk about, even within top, top secret cleared people, if they didn't have a need to know. Something really radical changed, but they spent a generation building up that network before they got to that level of boldness. Uh, if people want to read the detail, by the way, uh, of that uh, statement of grounds, which I mentioned, it's a long PDF, but well worth reading. The phrase to enter into any well-known search engine is people's Brexit, final detailed statement of grounds. And uh, I feel for Alfie, who in the chat box has just said, the problem is, Alex, the ordinary bloke can't challenge this stuff, particularly not in public. Well, Alfie, you're absolutely right. Uh, but 10,000 or 20,000 of us can challenge it. Uh, you know, even though common law is about the, the inalienable rights of the individual, the God-given rights, if you are surrounded, I feel very much as well for pro-liberty people in the, in the coastal parts of America right now in a city, uh, if you're surrounded by people who are, who are acting like non-playing characters, drones, uh, you, you do not have effective recourse uh, or redress for grievances because everyone, the, the, the police, the judges are against you. There's an element of, of group solidarity and identity that's needed here as well as standing on your rights. Yeah, thank you. Just to finish this segment very quickly, the Daily Mail did report on what the two key policing bodies had said about the Met Police effectively making up the law. So the two bodies, the College of Policing, established in 2012 as the professional body for everyone who works for the police service in England and Wales. Um, the government's intention is the College of Policing should operate independently of the Home Office. Well, we always hear that, Mike, don't we? We're independent. We then find that, of course, they're not. It was established as a limited company, apparently to become an official statutory body, but it still appears to be a limited uh, company. Um, this is the actual details of the, of the company itself. And the other body was the National Police Chiefs Council, and they are uh, there for the coordination of national operations. Uh, but it also says the national operational implementation of standards and policy as set out by the College of Policing and Government. So this, this is supposedly upholding standards of policing. Uh, remind me who's the chair of the MPCC? Uh, no longer, Mike. I think oh. you're going to say a lady, the former um, Thames Valley, Thames Valley yes. uh, Sarah Thornton. Oh. But I think she's been replaced by a man. Ah. Um, what did these two outstanding bodies have to say, as quoted in the paper? Well, MPCC said, uh, we suggest that the Met was the first force to suggest that diners be asked for such proof. And the College of Policing said there was nothing in coronavirus guidance to suggest pubs should request ID. So no worthwhile comment from those two bodies at all. Meanwhile, the Met Police under Cressida Dick simply make up the law and brutalised demonstrators. Uh, and sticking with uh, surveillance then, let's uh, have a look at Britain's fishing fleet. There it is, the whole of it tied up uh, at the harbour side. 
uh, because, of course, uh, there isn't much of that goes on uh, anymore. But anyway, the government on Monday uh, has asked for uh, evidence. So it's a, a, a consultation to examine whether monitoring technology should be used more widely on fishing boats operating in English waters to help support the sector uh, by preventing overfishing. So it's nothing to do with the monitoring to make sure that French fishermen aren't firing flares uh, at uh, British fishermen uh, in the channel. Uh, it's just to make sure that the British fishermen are maintaining their uh, their obligations of su sustainability and so on. So uh, they go on to say that now that the UK has left the EU, yeah, right, uh, the government is seeking to utilise the latest technology to better support the industry. So they're going to support the industry with this. They're not going to shut it down, but that's OK. Uh, these systems would help improve the management of fisheries, prevent overfishing and ensure the UK has a thriving and environmentally sustainable fishing sector by improving the data that is available to the industry and fish stocks, really. Um, so they're talking about cameras. Uh, they're talking about uh, other uh, monitoring technologies. Uh, here is uh, Victoria Prentice, uh, the fishing minister. She said, uh, as we take back control of our fisheries, we want to ensure a sustainable and thriving fishing industry. And of course, uh, we've made this point before, but this is pretty much echoing the sentiments of Michael Gove. Uh, for, who for both fishing and for farming has made it clear that whatever the future relationship with the EU, uh, we're coming out of the common agricultural policy and the com common fisheries policy, uh, whatever the re future relationship with the EU, that doesn't mean that that money, which has been effectively repatriated, is going to go to develop those industries uh, in the case of farming instead of developing uh, the farming industry to produce food. Uh, they will only get access to this money if they set aside their farmland for things like wildflower meadows and public footpaths, uh, so-called common goods, uh, public goods rather, um, and, uh, and it's the same deal for fishing. Um, so uh, the fishing uh, industry had huge hopes over Brexit really, Brian, but I think they're going to be uh, let down at the end. Well, they'll be betrayed in the same way the whole country was betrayed when we were led into the European Union. Uh, okay, so a couple of advertisements. Uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. That would be very much appreciated, very much needed. Now, uh, I am not certain whether uh, we are actually streaming out on Facebook. Uh, we are certainly sending a stream to Facebook. Uh, but when I went to set up the stream this morning, I got this message. Let's just blow it up so people can see it a little better. Uh, your post goes against our community standards. Only people who manage UK Column can see this post. So I'm not sure whether anybody else on Facebook can see what we're streaming out at the moment. Uh, we ha Facebook has these standards partly because misinformation that could cause physical harm can make some people feel unsafe on Facebook. Uh, so there you go. I uh, would be very pleased to well, hear you... if, if anybody knows whether we're actually uh, on Facebook or not at the moment. Yeah, but as Facebook is uh, is concerned, if you tell the truth about what's going on, you use factual information, you use a lot of the government's own information. If you do that, uh, Facebook doesn't want you. Uh, wasn't it Nick Clegg that uh, got a million pound a year job at Facebook? Oh yeah, he's, he's there absolutely well, doing, doing his job. So maybe we went across his desk, Mike. Possibly. Uh, quick reminder, AV 11.1, uh, Saturday 31st of October from 6 to 10 p.m. and also Sunday the 1st of November from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. Lots of people speaking, Brian. Yeah, we've got the information's now up on the AV website, so if you want to go and have a look. Now, I will be um, introducing the event on behalf of uh, Ian Crane. Ian is still poorly at home, but he's been working extremely hard from home to help make this event happen. So I'm delighted to stand up and help introduce it for him. Um, but we've got two speakers on the Saturday evening just to get people uh, thinking, really. Uh, that's myself and Alex Thompson. And uh, that's the introduction for the Sunday. Sorry, the print is a little bit small here. But uh, key speaker on Sunday is Patrick uh, Henningsen. We've got Paul Sells from Australia, who will be talking about total state-controlled lockdown. Uh, we've got Gemma O'Doherty and John Waters talking about the deep state in Ireland. So there's certainly a theme coming through in this one, Mike. We've got some other speakers still to be announced. That's all part of the excitement. We've got Debbie Evans, the lady from uh, Cornwall, who uh, spoke for the first time back in May. Uh, she's coming forward with 2020 vision in plain sight, and I think that will be a very good talk. We've got Gary Fraun. Noah was a conspiracy theorist, then it started to rain. 
Uh, we've got a, a break for the evening meal. Dr. Graham Downing, Humanity on Trial. Uh, Thomas Sheridan, Reasons to be Cheerful. And we're going to need some of those, I think. And uh, Ian Crane, we hope, will be coming in at uh, the end of uh, the event uh, to give a little bit of his summing up. So if you're not already signed up to AV, please join us because, my goodness, it's getting difficult to be as a group of people talking about what's really happening. Um, OK, so, uh, well, uh, Patrick uh, Henningsen has been putting together, speaking of Patrick, has been putting together uh, quite a package on the US election, and that's going to go out uh, imminently. Uh, and we're glad to say he's in the studio just to introduce that. So, uh, so over to you, Patrick. Thank you, Brian and Mike. Yes, this is just a couple of weeks before the big election, the 2020 US presidential election. Uh, we're looking at all the battleground states in the last couple of days, things are changing massively. So we put together a bigger package, a more in-depth analysis, looking at a lot of the key areas, trying to help people figure out what's going on uh, going into this, which looks like it's gonna be an absolutely tight race here uh, between the incumbent Donald J. Trump uh, and Joe Biden, the Democratic challenger. So uh, you can probably catch us uh, up on a number of platforms and uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh, uh, be airing this as well uh, on the UK Columns YouTube channel uh, and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. Uh, so it's going to be a real deep dive and we're going to be picking apart all of the things that we think uh, the mainstream pollsters and the mainstream media are completely missing. But this thing is coming to a head really fast and it's changing really fast as well. So we'll try to keep people abreast of the things that they, we think they need to know uh, to know what's going to be happening on November 3rd. But uh, back to you. Okay, thank you very much, Patrick. And uh, well, that's going to be very interesting. We'll, yeah. we'll let you know exactly when that's out. Uh, now, sticking with the US election then, or at least things that are happening around that, uh, the Russian uh, uh, foreign ministry has uh, issued this uh, statement. Uh, and this is about the uh, New START nuclear arms reduction treaty. This has been a, a topic of, of real uh, tension between the United States and Russia, apparently. Uh, over the last uh, number of months, and it looks like there's been a breakthrough. So uh, the statement is saying the position of ours may be implemented uh, only and exclusively on the premise that freezing of warheads uh, will not be accompanied by any additional demands on the parts of the United States. Uh, were, this, uh, were this approach acceptable for Washington, then the time gained by the extension of the New START Treaty uh, would be used to conduct comprehensive bilateral negotiations for the future uh, nuclear and missile arms control that must address all factors affecting strategic ability. And so they're talking about extending that for 12 months. And there's been quite a positive response from the US to this. Uh, the United States is prepared to meet immediately to finalize a verifiable agreement, says uh, Morgan uh, Ortagis, who's uh, the uh, State Department spokeswoman. Uh, so, Alex, I'm just interested in your thoughts on this, because the, the United States or the, uh, the Trump administration absolutely beginning to claim this as a victory uh, just in time for the election. Um, but of course, Trump has been fighting the State Department on this for quite a long time. This has been one of the main ways, Mike, in which we have been able to see this yawning chasm between two deep state branches in America, which sometimes are known as the Red Empire and the Blue Empire. The Blue Empire usually has its headquarters at Foggy Bottom, the State Department, the American Foreign Ministry, and uh, they have preferred, you can call it left of center uh, politics, but collaboration, multilateralism, mutual inspection regimes, allowing not just weapons inspectors into the US, but also election inspectors under the auspices of the OSCE, because America is a member of the OSCE, even though the, the title has the word Europe in it. These have been contested by what's known as the Red Empire based in the Pentagon, which has been more gung-ho, more uh, classic right wing or, uh, or militaristic. And I think the Red Empire here had a particular concern uh, because you know the the conventional ballistics uh, era seems to be uh, no longer where the game is at. It was for a very long time. It was a, a big issue back in the days of Pershing and uh, going into Trident in the early eighties. Uh, the START Treaty, the SALT, and all of the stuff that came at the end of the Cold War, uh, really from the seventies onwards. That basically, it's. It, I think America uh, at this this political level is making a virtue out of necessity here, and as you say, making something of an election oversell out of this commitment because the real problem is that the US has no treaty regime, no precedent for investigating the hypersonic weapons 
which Russia and possibly even China seem to have leapfrogged the US in, and to some extent even Iran. There's a, a level of technology sharing between the three. And together with that, we have uh, space-based weaponry and jamming electronic warfare, uh, all areas that most people don't think about unless they've been in military kind of flavored walks of life. But these are ways that can render the massive might of conventional weapons uh, obsolete, unusable, particularly in the open seas or the open skies. Mentioning open skies, by the way, the Open Skies Treaty is another leg of this, that the US got so nervous about automatically or by default allowing overflights over territory that it's leaned on the European countries as well to deny this so that the Russian Federation can't just under normal conditions send its aircraft over, it has to declare them. You know, again, these moves indicate that the nervousness is in the NATO camp. Uh, the feeling that we're behind and we need to know what the other side are up to is as it was in the dying days of the Cold War with the Soviets. Now it's with the Americans thinking we're falling behind. They've got a whole new generation that we can't get at. Yeah. yeah, thank you very much for that. Now, uh, we mentioned on Monday the Atlantic Future Forum, which has uh, started now. Uh, this, of course, is uh, being hosted on the aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth in Portsmouth. Uh, Queen Elizabeth becoming a conference, floating conf conference centre for a few days. Uh, we just ran through the, the types of topics that they're talking about. Uh, global competition, uh, digital threats, globalisation, uh, AI, next generation of defence. Uh, and so on. Uh, have a look at Monday's programme if you want to see more about that. Uh, of course, defending against pandemics and biological warfare is one of the topics for discussion on this. Uh, security and the prosperity and the future of space, as Alex has just mentioned. Uh, building back better, of course, uh, greener and more resilient uh, economies and the future of energy in a post-carbon world. Uh, this is all about the relationship between the UK and the United States. And the, uh, the chairman of that organization, the Atlantic Future Forum, is our old friend, uh, Lord Sedwell, who was speaking to the BBC this morning uh, and, had, and he was talking about President Trump. Uh, he said that President Trump is a very unusual occupant of that office, the presidency, in his personal style and the way he articulates the US position. Uh, and he went on to say, but the underlying alliance is based on much more than the individual relationships at the top. And I find that a very interesting statement because he's, he's talking there, Alex, about exactly what you've just been talking about. He's talking about the US deep state. So he's not really concerned about who's sitting in the, in the presidential seat, uh, so long as he's got all this other infrastructure around it. Well, this is, I mean, many whistleblowers have given us since the Second World War, both during and after the Cold War, they've given us indications of where the US deep state resides, particularly the, the level of it that says, have we got more uh, stuff to clobber the other side in the world than they have? And at times that's resided in various exotic secret committees. There's been a lot of to do over whether presidents have been read into these committees or sometimes that some of these committees have been alleged to have targeted the president themselves. Britain doesn't quite have that. Instead, it has what Tony Benn described in that famous uh, episode of After Dark from May 1989 on Channel 4, it was originally. Well worth watching his contributions, easily found on YouTube, Tony Benn After Dark. He talked about a permanent establishment in power using the name of the crown. And he, above all, was the man who said, the crown has been hijacked and corporatized. There is a corporate crown. It's no longer a sole corporation, but in effect, a joint corporation, which is unlawful uh, because we no longer have the sovereign on her oath. And Sedwill is the heir to that. Whether he's cabinet office or um, Lord High Everything Else or Factotum, uh, what he's in effect representing is the, the few hundred people in Britain who say, are we still in bed enough with the Americans to punch above our weight and threaten the Russians who have a hundred times more military equipment than us and you know who could flatten us, sorry to say, our conventional forces in five minutes. And I have that from fairly high up army planners. It's, it's well known inside the scene. The same applies sadly to our Navy. Uh, you can counter that by saying Admiral Lord West made a strong case to David Ellis last episode of uh, the David Ellis report that a carrier fleet has a lot more high ability than we might think, particularly when accompanied by the, the subs, the nuclear subs. But this is, this, this is the big hinge, really. You know, is the nuclear deterrent safe at sea? Is Britain basically going international and, and teaming up not just with the US, but with France and even Australia to have a kind of multinational sea-based nuclear deterrent surface and submarine? That seems to be the way things are going. And I think that's the angle at which the, the said will clique wants to be wedded, welded at the hip with the US, even though being in European Defence Union. But what we're not going to have is the grunt. We're not going to have enough boots, uh, enough men to fill the boots to, to pursue conventional aims. That's always been 
Britain's shortcoming faced um, facing a continental superpower or a rising power. We tend to have deflected that in the past by allying with the underdog against the main continental power at any moment, which is why we got the label of perfidious Albion for doing that repeatedly. But now we're not even doing that. We seem to be want, want to be the grand wizard of the continent and using other people's troops. Uh, I think that's I think that's right. As we were talking about on Monday, with the this new integrated uh, mechanism for for the way they intend to prosecute uh, war in the future. But uh, as well as that, it's interesting you mentioned Australia because the UK has just announced uh, a partnership with Australia, or at least a, a, a an agreement uh, to build uh, the future frigates uh, with the Australians. So so I think you're right on that one as well, Alex. But coming back to the United States for a second, I want to highlight this article and suggest that people read it. Uh, this is on Consortium News. It's by Patrick Lawrence. Now, Patrick Lawrence, uh, former journalist, who was he was fired from the nation uh, because he reported on Bill Binney's uh, evidence that uh, Russia didn't hack the uh, Democratic uh, email servers. Um, and uh, so he, he asks this question, uh, when we consider together all the many consequences, has Russiagate destroyed what remained of American democracy before illiberal values, spooks, law enforcement and the press colluded to erect the dreadful edifice, as he describes it. And he goes on to say, your calmness answer uh, rests on the most scrupulously precise definition of Russiagate, Russiagate one can manage. Uh, what we have witnessed these past four years is an attempted palace coup against a sitting president. When wrongdoing by Democrats is, is credibly exposed, automatically blame Russians, uh, among much else. Uh, that has led to unnecessary tension with the nuclear power. This damage will long stay with us. Uh, we have watched any attempted coup not much different from the CIA's covert ops elsewhere over the decades, uh, then gave the coup plotters three years to investigate the plot. Uh, and no one, as, these th as things now appear, will be brought to justice for these uh, travesties. Uh, and then he talks about the media, media and he says uh, they, only look, uh, like, they only look like newspapers now. The liberal media are now bulletin boards for those they serve, the Democratic Party, the spooks, and all the interests these two represent. Do they think once Trump leaves office, they can cavalierly reclaim the credibility they've uh, profligately squandered in the service of Russiagate? Uh, it's a very, very strong uh, article, Alex. And uh, as I say, I absolutely recommend it to, to everybody. It's hugely interesting. Well, the 17th century, as my grandfather always used to say, he couldn't understand why it wasn't taught better at schools, because uh, particularly for the English, well, actually just as much for the Scots and the Irish and the Welsh, it is the definitive century for constitutional settlement and formation. Uh, we go into that century extremely different to how we come out of it. And for those who get lost in the detail, who haven't studied it at school, basically think of the cardboard cutout stereotypes that you have of the um, you know the bon viveur royalist or, or or cavalier with his feathered hat and his you know his, his gallant ways with ladies and on the other hand the puritanical roundhead or parliamentarian um you know as embodied also by you know not just cromwell but the quaker and the other traditions of the time that wanted a flat and egalitarian society that's become the undercurrent of English society. Not far from Cheltenham in the Cotswolds is a village I used to visit, or a, a double village um, uh, in the Cotswolds. And I forget the name of the village itself right now, but one side of it's called Kings and the other side is called um, you know, some other preface to the village name because one side was royalist in the civil war and the other was parliamentarian and down to living memory about the 1950s, people from the one would not talk to or intermarry with the other. You know, there is this deep vein and the best historians um, we have, like, um, I forget his name right now, but the very opinionated historian who's often on TV um, being a bit petulant, who's got become more uh, more reactionary as time goes on, the name will come back to me. They have often pointed out that the, you know, much as I'm in sympathy with the religious aims of the Puritans, which were good, you know, the, 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 the righteousness of it, you know, uh, we are going to judge you all and ban you all. I'm afraid that does persist. It's a particular problem in the left of centre of British politics, the Liberal and Labour Party, when they get going, they tend to get dominated by moralism. Now it's spread to the right wing as well with this uh, responsibility to protect doctrine, the R2P. And it's you know often associated with New England puritanism in America as well. It's, it's a, a massive problem of we're going to you know, kill you for your own good. Or as John Bunyan worded it in uh, Pilgrim's Progress, there will be no mending of you till more of you be burned. So that was the spirit of, of John Bunyan's opponents in his day. It hasn't changed. England in particular, I think, needs to tackle this and to live up to its own billing of being a live and let live country and a truly tolerant country. We haven't got there yet. Yep. 
Okay, well, uh, just very briefly then, uh, let's have a look at the Evening Standard. Uh, and they've got a section on job cuts, but strangely enough, they're not talking about their own because uh, they are in the process of firing about 40% of their newsroom staff. So uh, if there's criticism of uh, the media in the United States, the same type of criticism could be applied over here. Uh, and as, uh, as uh, Patrick Lawrence says, uh, they are not going to... Uh, uh, recover their reputations follow you know in the in the coming uh, days and months but it's not just the evening standard the bbc and the guardian have both announced job cuts uh, so the bbc uh, is uh, total i think about 750 from the news team uh, and uh, the guardian uh, 180 jobs from both uh, editorial and commercial roles um, so uh, the squeeze continues uh, to be applied uh, to the the mainstream press but of course uh, evening standard George Osborne uh, has stepped down as editor. He's become editor-in-chief. Uh, he's been replaced by David Cameron's sister-in-law. Oh, that's, that's good, Mike, isn't yes, it? It's yes. good to have some family, um, family connectivity yes. there. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, he is being touted for the job of uh, chairman of the BBC. Um, how, could it all, how could it go wrong? How could it go wrong? Well, just to add to that, and thank you very much for the viewer who flagged this one up. Uh, this is forces.net. I'm not sure what it is. It's, um, it's a website and uh, a media site, especially for the forces, but you have to say how independent is it from the Ministry of Defence? I don't know, but this is the headline. Is your military base closing? Read the full list of sites shutting. I had to take a video of this, which I hope is going to play, and I might be able, not be able to read all of it. Um, but we've got an initial blurb, and then it starts listing cavalry bar barracks, Hounslow, Catterick Town Centre, Parcel, RAF Barnum, Mod Caledonia, HMS Nelson, Wardroom, Parkway, Bristol, RF Henslow, Royal Citadel, Plymouth. On it goes on to 2025, the Clive Barracks. Uh, mod 2027, the Royal Marines uh, Stonehouse Barrack closes and we get all the way through to 2031 and 32 when it says British Army Fort Fort George Inverness and Glencourse Barracks in uh, Pennyquick, if I pronounce that properly, are all going to close. So that must be a real boost for the serving military, Mike. And what I noticed while I was looking at that long list was this advert, which I actually found very, very offensive. Veterans Lottery play today for British heroes in need. Uh, what was in my mind is that we've got veterans with PTSD, they're homeless, we've got suicide on the increase, they're facing malicious legal actions, and for Forces TV, this is all a game, play a bit of lottery to help out these uh, people. Um, Alex, this was disgusting for me, actually. I, I looked at it and thought, is it just me? But every time I came back to it, there's somebody playing here on the subject of Britain's veterans. Yeah, they're, they're a, a very dangerous uh, constituency and have been for since the return from the First World War in, in Britain because, of course, the, the promise, uh, was it Stanley Baldwin or Lloyd George? I think David Lloyd George said he would, he would build homes fit for heroes for the returning troops and couldn't. And that's when the first infringements of the right to keep and bear arms happened in Britain, when the, uh, the servicemen returned. Uh, so, yes, there has been a, a lot of worry about veterans and what they could do. There's millions of them, especially if you count their families as co-campaigners. Uh, Fort George, which David Scott has given me a tour of in the village of Ardesia, which he's reported on because of all the water shenanigans, is very, very iconic. Um, and so is down the Citadel down, down your way in Plymouth. These are, you know, kind of last stand places where the guys are holed up within sight of the, the enemy ships uh, skirting the coast. Uh, so th there's, there's very psychological attacks going on. Oh, by the way, the, uh, the other town in Scotland you've, uh, you mentioned there is Pennycook. Um, and there's a couple of things I should mention while I remi remember them as well. The opinionated historian who pointed out the problem with continuing Puritanism in politics is David Starkey. Uh, well recommended, but sometimes wrong with his opinions, but, you know, a, a well-meaning man in many ways and well-informed. Well and Councillor Brian Sylvester has confirmed that we are streaming live on Facebook. And also, while I remember to say it, people should very much, if they want to learn about common law challenges, and a lot of people are asking now, where can I start to mug up on common law? Look at a website called We The People with hyphen. So it's we hyphen the hyphen people dot co dot uk if i remember the url correctly there's a long challenge just going into chief constables personally uh, this afternoon 
uh, by a, a, a syndicate who've written that, and it mentions all the right common law terms that people should get to grips with, such as malfeasance, misfeasance, negligence, uh, treason, and um, uh, subversion um, and all of the others. So uh, well re well worth going to we-the-people.co.uk and reading that challenge. Okay, thank you, Alex. Right, in the final minute we've got, we've mentioned the liberal press. Let's have a look at the Telegraph here. Thank you again to another viewer who flagged this one up. The headline is, my husband is a con COVID conspiracy theorist and it's driving a wedge between us. In our marriage diaries column, people share snapshots of their relationships seen now through the lens of the coronavirus pandemic. And the article is by Anonymous. Well, I'm, an I'm a little bit cynical about this. What does Anonymous mean? Is it possibly a government writer, Mike? We don't know. Um, is it the security services writing it? We don't know. 77 Brigade or somebody in 77 Brigade will be a good candidate. Well, the minimum is we've, we've got a, a genuine couple, but there's a political agenda being pushed here. So what was in the article? Well, this is uh, what the lady says. When it came to values and beliefs, my husband and I always sang from the same hymn sheet. We both voted leave. We both vote conservative. We are both agnostic. We both agreed on the fundamentals of how to raise our two children. So no stereotype there at all. Um, what comes back recently, uh, a schism has opened between us that I fear has put our entire marriage in jeopardy. Uh, it began in a local cafe several weeks ago. We walked in with our face masks on and I noticed a sign on the counter with a QR code link to the NHS test and trace app. I'd not downloaded it at that point, so I took my phone out of my pocket. It's a little bit of teaching people how to do things. Um, and the husband says, why are you doing that? The government uses it to track you. I know I laughed, that's the point. But it's all part of the plan to control us, he continued. I shook my head, not sure if he was joking, despite the serious look on his face. It's written in a very interesting way for an yeah. ordinary family. I wanted to understand his thought process. Do you do that with your partner? No. I want to know what my partner's thinking. What's she thinking? What's, you know, I want to know what his thought process was. So I questioned him. He regurgitated one of the ridiculous social media conspiracies circulating online that the Test and Trace app is a nefarious piece of software that is being used to monitor and control the populace. Every sentence begins to sound more like propaganda than the general, genuine, heartfelt opinions of a wife. Thank you, Mike. The following week, he tutted when I reminded him to put his mask on as we entered a shop. I was taken aback when he mumbled something about not being a sheep. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm going to laugh. Then the other day, when we were watching a news report about the race to find a vaccine, he blurted out that he wouldn't be having it and neither will the children, he stated, before explaining that the vaccine is being developed by Big Pharma in cahoots with the government and is another control mechanism. So what's going on here? What I think is going on is the Telegraph is enforcing government propaganda by this storyline, but they're also playing with the minds of couples. And we know that real damage is being done as a result of lockdown. But the nasty thing about this is that if you go and look at the headlines of this series from the Telegraph. This is the sort of thing you find, the one we've covered. Then we've got COVID has made my partner wealthy again, but I'm petrified money will change him. Well, that's a unique family. They're becoming wealthy on the back of COVID. Thanks to lockdown, all the things that I loved about my husband now infuriate me. So this is this is attacking the, the marriage and the partnership. During lockdown, my husband works from home, but I long for him to go back to the office. And uh, my wife is drinking her way through lockdown and I'm worried about her health. Now, all of these uh, headlines were accompanied by cartoons produced by this gentleman here, because he's, he's named on the picture. And uh, um, Alex is holding another one from the Independent up, real men don't wear masks the link between masculinity and face coverings. Uh -huh. So there's another piece of style. Thank you for that, uh, Alex. And I'm just going to end with this that uh, I also picked up. It's Nigel Farage. Um, he's retweeting a thing from Michelle Owen, which said the sports bar and pizzeria is open in Ashton Gate tonight where fans can watch. 
but just through the door is the actual game which they're not allowed to watch outside so they can be in a closed unhealthy space as it were as far uh, as the allegedly wife. yes allegedly um, uh, but they can't watch the game Nigel Farage says this is crazy we have to say Nigel wake up this is nothing to do with being crazy this is planned attack on people's minds and we've been warning about it for years so this is one of the key issues isn't it that we can see this vicious psychological attack on the country but many people are still trying to uh, rationalize it by saying it's crazy alex 30 seconds and i think we're out of time one of the tags at the bottom of Olivia Petter's article in The Independent, uh, which I just held up for you to read out the title of Real Men Don't Wear Masks, one of the tags at the bottom is read more about toxic masculinity. So I suppose that Mr Farage's tweet, this is madness, was that the phrase? That probably ought to also to go under toxic masculinity because he's clearly uh, aggressing there in his use of language in a way that a woman would be too civilised to. Uh, we're beginning to see why fathers and husbands are being edged out, aren't we? Because they're the only counterbalance in many households to women otherwise feeling an inordinate amount of pressure to go with the flow. Uh, well, that's um, that's one view. And I'm also going to say from the other side, Alex, I'm well impressed to use that phrase at the number of grandmums grandmothers who actually have the guts to stand up and be counted with what's happening in the country while i can still look for these senior military men to actually stand up and say what what really needs to be done to stop it so i'm going to put a big plug there for the more mature women who are actually on the battlefield we'll leave it there thanks for joining us uh, we will be back at the same time on friday bye 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 bye